Kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I got to speak recently at an Academy X event and had a lot of fun. The topic was reimagining business, and I was able to really give some background on my own history, but then talk about what the future of business might be. I thought this conversation I had with Hansine, who interviewed me, really enshrined a lot of the concepts that I talk about often on Seeds and in writing that I do. And for that reason, I'm going to put the whole audio of the session up here. I hope you enjoy it. What we'll do uh, tonight is uh, just, we'll start us off with karakia just to bring us all into the space, um, and then I'll um, get into awe mahi and on our way. So, mea karakia tātou. Ko te kawa o runga, ko te kawa o raro, ko te kawa ora, ko te kawa ora. E runga o whakairia, ki runga turuturu whiti whakamaua ki a tēnā. Huia tāia ki e. O tēnā koutou katoa, Tihei mauri ora, e nga mana e nga reo e rau ranga tera mā. Haere mai ki runga e te kaupapa o te rā, karanga mai ki te kaupapa o te rā. Kia hui tahi ai, tātou tēnei rā. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Ko horohoro e inga o nga ringa o katuma te moimoi te maunga, ko pōkaitu te awa, ko nga te kia, nga te tuara mā, me nga te whakaui te hapu, ko nga te tuara nō tēnei māka nō ko te herangi hoki o kutupuna, ko kerero te marae, ko te awa, te iwi, ko Hansen's Value and Tokyo Ingwa. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Well, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Uh, my name is Hansen Zimbalion. I'm the program lead for the Master of Change in Organizational Resilience and the Postgrad Certificate in Leading Change for Good at Academy X. I hail from Rotorua and Whakapapa to Tiarawa, Scotland, Denmark, just to name a few. <laughs> um, something about me I'm neurodivergent. I have dyslexia or ADHD, so please forgive if I get a few words wrong here or there, but I'm sure you'll work with me on that. On the call tonight, we have from Academy X, we have Jenna Prudence, our wonderful marketing manager, Lisa Wittinslater, our outreach manager, and we have our wonderful guest speaker, Stephen Moe, uh, with us tonight, who I will introduce to you shortly. So the plan for tonight is to go over some housekeeping and to get into welcoming Stephen to the floor, where Stephen and I will have an interactive discussion on reimagining business, and then we'll have some time for your questions that you may want to ask Stephen as well. Uh, we want to keep this reasonably organic, um, so if you do have a burning question as we're going through the discussion, please just pop it in the chat, uh, and we will uh, see if we can um, answer that uh, more quickly. This event is hosted by Academy X. It's part of our Leading Change for Good series. Uh, the audio is part of the Seeds podcast, which I'll explain in a second. So I'll just go over to the Zoom housekeeping. Uh, this session will be recorded, just to FYI, and will be sent out by email tomorrow for those who registered to the event, along with the slide deck. Um, please keep... Oh, sorry, we're also recording this audio for Stephen's Seed podcast, and if you haven't seen that, you can go ahead and check that out. We'll pop that uh, link in the chat, and we'll talk about it a little bit more as we introduce Stephen as well. Uh, could you please keep yourself on mute unless you are invited to speak, have a question to ask, um, and please use the chat function in the interim for asking questions. Um, there is some dedicated time for question and answers at the end of this, and we, of course, love to see your smiling faces, and so please turn your video on if you are able as part of this interactive session.
So, uh, without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Stephen um, Mode, who holds multiple hats within spaces he walks within. He's a lawyer by trade, a partner at Perry Field Lawyers in Christchurch, with a focus on startups and small business and purpose-driven entities, helping them succeed through practical support on topics such as structures, raising capital, and IP. Stephen also hosts the podcast that I just mentioned, Seats, where he has interviewed over 350 people who are living their lives of purpose. He's an author of uh, Social Enterprise in New Zealand and Reimagining Business, distilling insights from his podcast, his work, and his passions about the future of business. Today, our discussion will focus on what we design, what would we design if we could reconsider the role of business without our preconceptions and start over. In this interactive talk, Stephen will share about the limitations inherent in our current structure options, how business can still enshrine the impact despite those shortcomings, and what the future might hold if we really did imagine the role of business within a 100-year perspective. In preparation for this conversation, I have listened to many of these podcasts and essays that you have posted, Stephen. I'm intrigued by you and your story. So I'd like to start the conversation focused on your journey with the programs at Academy X, we recognize the importance of lived experience that you bring with you and how this shapes your identity, your contribution to your context, your work, your family, your social events, etc. We recognize this experience can and will shape our actions going forward from a child to the workplace and other contexts. We construct actions and reactions from these past experiences and apply these to our new ones. This can limit our ability to see things differently, to adopt other perspectives or to change. Having vulnerability to share part of your story can enable rich connections, inspiration, and support for people to overcome some of our own limiting behaviours and mindsets. So, without further ado, Stephen, I'd like to ask, who are you? You have an interesting accent. It's always a good conversation starter, but tell me a little bit more about your upbringing and, and what's led you to be who you are today. So, welcome, Stephen. Oh, well, thank you so much for allowing me to be here. Um, tēnā koto katoa. No America ho no te tematanga, ko te taita toku manga, ko waitaki toku awa, ko otatahi toku kainga inaine, e roya toku tunga mahi o Perryfield Lawyers, ko Stephen Motoku, ingwa, nore anami hikia koto katoa. Um, yeah, thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this event because I feel like the people who've joined this call are probably already part of my tribe. So um, thank you for being here, all of you, um, whether you're watching right now or if you're watching a recording or listening to it later on Seeds podcast. Um, so yeah, your question, I always feel like I need to explain a little bit in that I do have an accent, um, but you always have to be careful with accents. You can't judge people necessarily on what you think they would be. So in my case, um, I moved to Aotearoa, New Zealand when I was seven years old. Um, that was way back in 1984. Um, my father was a marine biologist, kind of an unusual profession, and he was an expert in raising salmon. So the salmon industry was not, didn't exist in the early 1980s. So he came in from America and helped to start that as an industry here. So that brought them actually down um, in Otago on the Waitaki River. That was where we moved to a small, small place called Papakayo. And I was in what at the time was standard three. If any of you remember the old standards, you know, standard three and four, we were in one classroom, about 20 children together. So a very small rural place. 
Um, and then my parents moved us in 1989. We moved to Christchurch, Otatahi. So I grew up here in the South Island in Otatahi. I went to Canterbury University. Um, and I think for me, I've always had a feeling of, um, you know, where am I from, Turanga Waiwai? I look at the mountains, the port hills. It, there's just a feeling for me that it's this place. Um, so this is where I feel very connected. And I've moved around a lot. But this is the place where I can drive somewhere and I won't be able to tell you the street names, but I'll get you there. <laughs> you know, it's I know it well enough that that's how I feel. Um, so after graduating from Canterbury University, I started work at a law firm called Russell McVeigh in Wellington. And I spent three years there and I met my wife there who's English. So we actually spent another three years in London. And then um, I speak some Japanese, so they sent me to the Tokyo office. And then after the Tokyo office, four years there, I moved to Sydney. And with four young children who came home singing the Australian national anthem, we realized it was time to reconsider where we were living. <laughs> so we moved back here seven years ago. So my story, my career, if you like, is one of different um, objectives or purposes because the first half of my career was very much focused on corporates and banks, um, very large scale deals. The law firm I worked for had 3,800 lawyers, 3,800 lawyers in one firm, 55 offices. So my background is very big end of town, you know, billion pound deals. And so when I arrived back here, I really wanted to reinvent my career to be focused on the principles of impact and purpose. So now I'm helping corporates and companies, but usually they're purpose-driven and profit is part of what they do so that they can be sustainable. And as well as that, I'm helping a lot of charities and helping them set up. Um, and we'll get into the dynamics there of um, how those worlds interact but that's a little bit of uh, my history awesome uh stephen and, and thanks thanks for that and it sounds really rich in in terms of yeah from um salmon farming and um the intricacies of that to to big big shot law firms uh, definitely uh a twist and, and turn in in terms of um yeah, sort of focus in in living. I, I guess um, I've heard you ask this a few times on on some of your podcasts. But what was the seven year old Stephen like? What were you What were you like when you were seven years old? Well, that's a great question. It's nice to have the question reversed. As you mentioned, um, I've done three hundred and fifty six interviews now, so that's usually my opening question with the guest: is What was life like when you were five years old? So I guess my seven year old self, it was a time of transition. You know, I was arriving in a new country and um, still working out where I fit in the scheme of things. Um, I think I've always had kind of a curious bent. Um, my mother taught me a principle, which I still live by. Um, and she told me one time, if you meet someone and you don't think that they're interesting, that's not their fault. It's your, it's on you, because that means you haven't asked the right question yet. So she is a very inquisitive, curious person. And so I learned from her this idea that every person has a story and a journey. And so we need to be reaching out and asking questions. And unfortunately, with the dominance of screens and attention spans, we just don't spend enough time talking with each other and really going 
a little bit deeper than the surface of, you know, what's the weather like where you are. So yeah, I'd say that was a bit about who I was. That curiosity was there. After living in New Zealand, we did move to Chile as well. So I learned to speak Spanish when I was eight or nine years old. And I think that opened up my world. Um, having another language, I think it causes you to realize that the world isn't a rigid place, that there may be more than one way to describe bread. You know, it could be bread, it could be pan. It's the same. So I think that was who I was as a young child. Oh, thank you, uh, Stephen. Um, yeah, nice little window into you know, some of those experiences that really do shape how you uh, walk through life, I guess, in, in the future as well. So what I touched on in there, but of the opening there. So um, if we move into this topic for reimagining business, what inspired you to write about this topic? Uh, you've mentioned uh, around purpose and impact, but you know, want to tell me a little bit more about why you decided to write these essays? Yeah, no problem. Um, and I'm going to hold this up so people can see it. And we'll send a link to it. It's a free download for anybody who's interested. And as you say, it's a series of essays that I wrote for stuff and spin off in other places, really questioning what the future of business could be. Um, and I guess the answer, in a way, I don't want to leave my parents just yet, because they had a profound influence on me, as all of our parents do. Um, I was really lucky that my parents, um, in the 1960s, they volunteered for something called the Peace Corps. So some of you may have heard of that. And the Peace Corps was basically sending young Americans out, like whatever your perceptions of America is, this is one of the bright spots. They were sending young, young graduates out to countries to help people. So my father was working to set up cooperatives of fishermen in Southern Chile. And my mother was working in Santiago. That's where they met. And I think that background from them, it's always been this, this questioning of, well, why is it the way it is? And, and if there's injustice, then what could we do? So from my perspective, having worked in the big corporate law firm, I really was focusing on how I can reinvent who I am and what I focus on. So in 2017, some of you may remember that the Social Enterprise World Forum was held in Christchurch. So I had just arrived back in the country, and this became something that I could hang my hat on. Um, so I wrote a book called Social Enterprise in New Zealand, a legal handbook. Um, and that was when I started the podcast as well. And I guess the answer to your question is, I kept meeting entrepreneurs and people who wanted to push the boundaries of what was possible, but felt like they were speaking a different language. And that the language, the terminology that would normally be used when it comes to business, words like profit, quarterly reporting, you know, expansion, that that wasn't resonating with the principles that they wanted to bring to business. So it was really a response to meeting these amazing people who were using different vocabulary and realizing that, hey, as a lawyer, I can be a catalyst for change because I can help them to set things up that are done in a different way, in under a new paradigm of thinking of what the role of business could be. Yeah, thank you for that, um, Stephen. And I think it really gives a, a bit of um, 
I guess, feeling and insight in terms of how these essays came together and, and what we were thinking at the time. And you just mentioned the parag uh, paradigm shift in, in terms of thinking and, you know, that the notion of positive impact taking precedence over that traditional profit center approach. And that's quite a big one uh, across, the, across the globe. But as we see, there are, there are lots of um, shifts in the in this space. But how is it crucial now why now why this conversation what's needed well i i want to start uh, so let's jump in a little time machine okay let's go back 250 years did companies exist not in the way we think of them like we invented them as a human species we invented this thing called a company so if we were to go back in time the way it worked is if you had an idea, if you were an entrepreneur, you wanted to set up a bakery. Like, I don't know if any anybody here, if their surname is Baker, maybe their great, 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 you know, grandparents were bakers. And so if you did that and it didn't work out, you lost everything. So the company is a fictional creation which exists to promote entrepreneurship because it limits liability for entrepreneurs. So if I set up the bakery and it doesn't work out, I'm not going to lose everything. The company will go into liquidation and sure, I'll, I'll have reputation damage, and but I'm not going to lose everything usually. <laughs> so companies, the point is that companies didn't exist in the past. Like go back a thousand years, there's no companies. We invented them in the relatively recent history. So if we invented them, then if we got a blank piece of paper out and we're inventing them again, would we invent them the same way? And my answer to that would be, no, we would not. We would not invent them the same way. And so therefore, if they're fictions and if we invented them and if we see structural ways that they could be improved, then we should be working as hard as we can today to reinvent the form of company so that we have something that in a hundred years time or 200 years time will actually be generative and actually not extractive. And I think for me, that's the lens that I'm using on everything today. Like we, we have short lifespans. One of my hopes is, um, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to do this forever. I would hope that I can pass the baton to the next generation of lawyers coming up who can continue the work that we're doing today, but that maybe, just maybe a hundred years from now, someone will stumble across this recording and say, wow, look what they were talking about in 2023. They had the, the foresight and the vision to realize that they needed to think in a new way about the role of a company and that there were some key tweaks to the company structure that were needed to really bring a new conception for the future. So that's kind of my thinking on that one. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. And it's really interesting you say a new perspective, but some of the concepts that you talk about, and particularly in SA4, um, you mentioned um, the importance of kaitiakitanga, te ao Māori, and the, the Māori worldview in, in terms of the way that um, we can navigate in the future. And if we think about that more holistic model, before 
capitalization before we uh, moved into this uh, systems and, and structures that we have within um, within education, uh, within education, within um, society, within within all aspects. It's more of a is it a more of a move forward or is it looking to um, some more more models that have been um, upheld in the past because now we've got a focus on that regeneration rather than as someone said not um, extractive. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This is the thing, you know, there's the old saying, there's nothing new under the sun, you know, like, th that's true to a certain extent. And I think if we do look, this is where I think we have the opportunity here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, I think that we can be world leading, because we have a richness and a depth, which comes from a proper conception of Te Ao Maori. So that's why in the essay and, and in other parts of that little book, um, I talk quite a lot about things like stewardship and kaitiakitanga and intergenerational well-being, you know, like that um, so often from a Western conception, we're talking from an individualistic perspective, you know, me, <laughs> I'm the I'm the hero of this story. Whereas actually from a, if you look at it from a Te Ao Maori perspective, it would be more of a community focus. Um, so I think that we have an incredible richness that we can draw from and learn from. The, one of the key things, particularly as a Pakeha, is that I'm not meaning this in a tokenistic or in a colonizing of concepts ways. I'm talking about a deep and rich understanding of these principles and concepts. So that's really important to clarify, because when I talk about this with people offshore, they might just say, oh, well, great, this, this thing called kaitiakitanga, I'm going to copy paste it, and um, that's it. But we have to go a lot deeper than that and have a real richness to it. Um, but the, the point is that here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, if we could do this well, and I think we could because we're small enough, we're nimble enough, you know, after the shootings here in Christchurch, there were changes made to gun laws, and it went through, you know, like, look at America, it just doesn't happen. So if we could come up with a solution for what the future of companies could be, and we adopted it here, then I think we could be the template that every other country looks at and says, look at what they're doing over there, we should try that, we should adopt what they've done, because somehow they've been successful. The other thing is that other countries have tried to do some of the things that we're going to get into the detail of. So it's not like we can't say we're world leading. I know we always like to say that, but the reality is that in the UK, they introduced something called the community interest company like more than a decade ago. It's been there for a long time. But what I would say is we can learn from Italy, the UK, Canada, the US, where they've introduced first generation models of corporate structures and we could leapfrog over those models to get to a third generation model that actually improved on everything that had been done before and that's one reason like i wrote the book social enterprise in new zealand a legal handbook but i've actually moved away from the term social enterprise the reason is that i prefer now talking about impact impact enterprises or impact companies. And that's the terminology that I think we should potentially adopt here, because then we're differentiating ourselves from what's been done using that terminology of social enterprise in other parts of the world. Um, and I think we have an amazing opportunity there to lead the way 
you know, like a world leading change rather than stepping in the shoes of other people. Um, because I'm not sure that I want what is done as social enterprise offshore to be what we do. I want us to reinvent the concepts so that they don't just apply to those people over there who are social enterprises. I want it to pervade all 750,000 companies that exist in New Zealand as a concept that all of them get on board with. That's um, re really, really interesting in, in terms of that terminology. And I, I'd really love you to just sort of go a little bit deeper in terms of the why uh, you are saying that uh, from the, the term social enterprise and, and what that means and what that means to others offshore and uh, a little bit more about what you mean by impact and enterprise and, and what the what the differences would, would really be. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I love these topics and thank you everybody for joining to listen to this because it's really fun for me. Um, so for me, um, it's just a terminology point. I think the words that we use matter. Um, I'm going to go on a slight divergence, but I think you'll appreciate it. So um, the term not for profit, how many of you have used that or seen that? If we think about that as a parallel to what we're talking about, not for profit, why do we use that term? First of all, it starts with a negative. An entire sector is painted by what it is not. And what is it comparing to? It is not for profit, as if profit was the ultimate aim of our entities. So I think the terminology not for profit is going down the wrong road. So I've been advocating for a new term, which is for purpose organizations. So that's when it comes to charities. So I'm just giving you an example of the fact that the words we use matter. And I think for purpose, it would be better than not for profit. So when it comes to social enterprise, I have used the word a lot. I'm finishing a book right now where I only use it once. And I say, I'm not going to use this term in the book. <laughs> and I explain why. So you'll be able to read that pretty soon. Um, that's I'm, uh, my first title for that is the impact tree paradigm, um, reimagining business. It's kind of a follow-up to this one here. Um, but anyway, the term social enterprise, um, the first thing is social. Like, what do we mean by social? Because social in its own concept, it, it's kind of a limited term. Like does social include environmental is environmental that's not quite social, is it? It's related, but it's not exactly the same. So I feel like the term impact is like a bigger umbrella that sits over more. Um, so social, cultural, environmental, financial, like it's all, these are all terms that we want to be having in our conception. So that's why I've been preferring the term impact company or impact enterprise. Um, just because I think it is a broader conception of what we're talking about. And I think it it's actually something, like I said before, I, I just worry. I've been to a lot of conferences, right? And I've talked with people from big companies. And as soon as I use the word social enterprise, they're like kind of dismissive, to be honest. They're like, oh, yeah, that's what those people do over there. You know, like it's it's not something that would apply to my multimillion dollar company. Whereas actually, I think we need to be encouraging every company to be adopting the principles that sit beneath social enterprise. So the two key changes that I would see implemented 
Um, the first one is that in New Zealand, we do not require companies to adopt a constitution when they begin. And I think that's a mistake. Um, I think that what we should be requiring is that every company has a constitution. So that's a public facing document. Anyone can find it. Anyone can download it. And not only should I do I think companies should have a constitution, I think they should be required to articulate their mission or their purpose in the constitution, not as cause 27 on the back page, but actually right up front and center, like cause number one, this company exists too, and then actually force people to say what that is. Um, so I'm working with a company right now and we are designing their constitution. And the opening phrase of this constitution is a very challenging one. It says, this company exists to serve Mother Earth. This company exists to serve Mother Earth. So it's conceiving the role of the company, not from a Milton Friedman perspective of shareholder primacy and extraction of profit, but instead placing it within the scheme of the earth itself. So not every company, that wouldn't be appropriate for every company, but um, for some companies, it will be appropriate. And I think um, if you look at a company like um, Kind Cafe up in Morningside in Auckland, you know, I helped them draft their constitution. And that talks about the role of the that company being to foster community in that particular location. So that's kind of um, the first thing that I think would be really helpful. Um, I realize that not every company is going to want to, you know, do this. And I see the note in the chat, would this add to more compliance? Um, but my perspective would be, we should at least have the conversation. And then I think if companies wanted to do this and adopt a constitution and they were clear on their impact, then we could have a subset of companies that were called impact companies. They could qualify for that status. And then more people might be aware of it and start to think about what are we doing and why do we do it? So that would be the first thing. The second thing is I would like to require companies to report on their impact and what they're actually doing. Because um, I think there's a big disconnect right now between the greenwashing that's probably happening, the social washing of people saying one thing and doing another. So those are some initial reactions to your question. Yeah, um, again, thank you uh, for that, Stephen. And in terms of uh, the terminology and how important that is to, to have those discussions, I think you're a very loaded set of ideals that come with um, some of those names and, and particularly um, not-for-profit is, is definitely one and we, we hear that and use that quite a lot here as you say um, but also that a lot of these uh, not-for-profit organizations are struggling in terms of structures and support and finance and and being able to survive and in the the world that they're within and um and so we might have a lot of people wanting to do do good in the community wanting to give back into the community but are really finding some constraints in terms of being able to do so effectively so have you got any thoughts on on that i do um i think about this a lot and one of the things that i want to be clear about is that each of us are like fish in the fishbowl so what I mean by that is that you don't even know that you're breathing water if you're a goldfish, right? Like that's just the way it is. And it's the same for each of you listening. 
we grew up with a conception, which is kind of a binary way of thinking, which is if you're going to do good, you set up a charity. If you're going to make money, you set up a company. And so that binary conception has infected the way that we think about things. So one of the things that I'm doing a lot of right now is helping people to understand that it doesn't have to be a binary thing. You know, like if if you're talking to someone and they say, I'm going to set up a cafe, your mind immediately is thinking, oh, you're going to get some investors. There's going to be some profit. You're going to need some loans from the bank. If you talk to someone and say, and they say, I'm going to help people who've just been released from prison, you're probably thinking, oh, someone's going to donate you money. And where are you going to get your source of funding for the charity that you're going to set up? And the new way, the merging that happens is I'm going to set up a cafe that employs people who used to be prisoners. So you're actually fulfilling a mission and a purpose at the same time as having a viable business. So that's just the the conception, the blending or the merging of what's going on when it comes to the thinking. Um, And then what I'm also helping a lot of people with is charities realizing that they could set up a company that would actually um, advance their purpose. And so helping them set up a commercial business that is profitable. And then I'm also helping a lot of companies set up charities because there are funding streams and things which are available that are available for charities, but not for businesses. So as an example, just to make it really practical, um, I've got a client who's doing amazing work as a building company. They employ hundreds of people. They build houses. They're really good at what they do. Um, even in what they do, they, they do a lot of social housing and building housing of that type. But the founder said to me, is there other things that we could be doing? And we brainstormed and basically they've set up a charity. And so the charity is about education around poverty alleviation through providing housing. So the charity and the business are working together to achieve the outcomes rather than it needing to be, well, I'll go make as much money as I can so then I can gift it to a charity. So there's, I guess what I'm saying is that there is a greater understanding that hybrid solutions are increasingly possible if you have a bigger conception beyond just the binary way of thinking. What do you think that there are, I mean, we, you've talked about greenwashing and, and sort of ticking the boxes uh, along the way. And if, if you are a profit-driven organization, and I think there's definitely some examples out there of this in play at the moment, and we have a, um, we have an arm that sort of gives back to a community, but but in essence, overall, the, the harm that's been done by the profit driving side of the business is not um, sustainable in, in terms of that, but yet are getting benefits for having that uh, we give back, which is not you know quite enough to to even be in that space because ethically, if we're talking about you know setting up a, a an impact and looking at at something that is uh, for good in the for good space or for purpose space, and it's looking after our our earth number one and 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 people and and then going down into the profits. What's your take on that, and and how do we how do we transition away from that as a as a bit of an offset model? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And I think part of the answer is that the solutions don't come instantly. And it's it's we have to get out of a conception of it's going to happen next year. These The transitions take time, unfortunately. <laughs> but the more people that attend this type of a call or have these sorts of discussions, the better, because then more people are going to be out rousing debate within their companies saying, is what we're doing are we really just social washing? You know, like, are we, is this really just a marketing spend to get more money so that we can keep producing the widget, which is made of plastic and is, you know, destroying our earth? So I think it's a legitimate question, but I guess I would rather have a company at least be doing something and be on a journey than to have them not even doing anything. Um, part of the answer, though, to your question is that over time, I think that increasingly consumers will demand this, right? Like it's not going to be a case of you're going to be able to get away with it. And you can actually see a big shift right now. Um, the XRB, which sets the financial standards for New Zealand. Um, I'm on the XRB advisory panel, um, just meeting with them every once in a while and talking about what the people in the room are seeing. And what they've done is introduce these climate reporting standards for the top 100 companies in New Zealand. So this is the big end, you know, like the multi-million, maybe billion dollar companies, you know, they're massive companies, the top 100 in New Zealand, they're gonna need to start reporting on climate change and how it's impacting on them as a company. So it's not hard to foresee, you know, I don't have to be too much of a prophet to say at some point in the future, I can imagine that that will filter down to all companies need to report on this. And not only that, maybe we'll require reporting on how is your company impacting on climate change, like the, the, the standard that direction as well. So I guess part of the answer is I think it's coming. I view this as a wave. It's not a tsunami, but um, think of this picture, right? If you're at the beach and it's low tide and you're standing out at low tide, if you stand there long enough, the water is going to rise and rise and rise. And at some point, you might be swimming, <laughs> you know, if 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 you're that far out. Um, and in the same way, what I'm seeing is lots of symptoms of greater societal change. So benefit corporations, you know, the rise of private accreditations like that, B Corp, impact investing, you know, the conception that it's not just about financial returns, it's about the impact of the group that I've invested into. Um, you look at Section 131 of the Companies Act, so this was something Duncan Webb proposed, um, a greater conception of the duties of directors. Um, it may not get through, but it's interesting that it was proposed that directors have to consider the treaty, you know, the environment, employees. So these are all examples of shifts that are going on. And I guess part of the answer is it, it doesn't happen instantly. And I take great comfort from the fact that in 2019, I got the opportunity to work with the Akina Foundation, who've been doing amazing mahi and work for a very long time. And we, um, together with some other co-authors, did a report on the future of business, which I can send the link to if anyone's interested. And at the time, we thought, oh, great, well, there's going to be instant change. But of course, it didn't happen that way. But now I talk to people four years later in government and other places, and they're like, yeah, I, I know that report. So, you know, there's no instant change, but 
it's incremental. And over time, my hope would be in 10 years, we look back and say, wow, the needle has really shifted on all of these things. Sorry. What do you think that's going to take um, in terms of shifting that needle? And you've talked about it already earlier tonight where you've, you've said that things can change and have changed and will change over time in, in history as, as we've already seen in the past. But for the present, I think this is the, the trap that we are sort of stuck in, particularly within the for good or climate space when we're saying we, we don't want to just greenwash or social wash or, or those sorts of things, but we want to move into that space that because there's going to be immediate pain for people who are shifting into that space potentially without systems and structures in place to support them in that place when, when we're in that transitionary phase, but also that the impact is a long, a long fuse, big bang type of thing. So we have to start the fuse at some point and, and we're starting to, to see some signs, as you've mentioned, getting, getting that, that started. But because there's no immediate reward and we are a consumer society who is set up for immediate rewards we look at the advancement of technology and, and things like TikTok and snapchat and you know really really short pieces of information that that we're that we're consuming and 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 a lot of um, things I've, i could probably go on and on on but yeah so so how do we um how do we hold in the space and and what are your thoughts in in, in that and then now yeah, well, from from my perspective, I take great comfort from the next generation. So I think if any of you have done any interviews with graduates recently, usually the, the final question, you know, do you have any questions for us or something? It's usually around like, well, what impact will my career have here? Or, you know, what what's your what are you doing about climate change? Or, you know, like there's an awareness that just isn't there if you went back to the 80s or 90s when the final question might have been so do I get a company car with this position you know like there's a mindset shift that's happening so I take great comfort from that and I notice in the chat people are asking about but incremental change you know it's slow do we need to move faster um, I guess one of the things is that we're so focused on immediate you know like we live in a culture of immediacy I, I want to click it and I want to see the video right now um, and I think we have to realize that for true change that has deep and per pervasive roots, it's just going to take a little bit longer than the instant switch that could be could be done. So I guess part of it is taking people on the journey with you. And if each of the people on this call are listening to this audio later, you know, if each of them has conversations and then they have conversations and like, I think it needs to build. Um, and that's why I love the work that you're doing in the programs that you're offering, because you're forcing people to think about this stuff. And, you know, you're thinking about what does change mean and how do we implement it? Um, so I wish I, I wish I had a switch that would, um, you know, change everything tomorrow, but that's just not, that's just not realistic. I think to get it through, what we're going to need is some people in power who are willing to put their hands up and see beyond a three-year electoral cycle and stand up for some deeper principles that are maybe not going to be popular, and that's the problem. <laughs> um, but that's kind of what we need. We need leaders who um, are willing to take us. But then the other part is that each of you are consumers. So what are you buying? And how are you making that choice? 
because I would rather that Etique, what Brienne West founded, you know, looking at the getting rid of plastic bottles and shampoo containers, like that's a simple way when you're shopping, what are you buying? And that's going to send a clear message to even the most capitalistic person that actually there's a positive role to be played if we change how we're acting as a company because consumers are going to follow us or they're going to stop buying from us unless we change. Yeah, so true. And there's so many things that we, we can do as individuals. And I think that's something that we discuss a lot, particularly within our programs is in terms of your own locus of control and, and the decisions that you can make in order to enable change in your spaces and places. And sometimes you're, you're powerless and, but you can still ask the questions and you can still put it out there. And we've uh, wandered a little bit into the territory of uh, the political football, but uh, being an election year, we'll, we'll try and keep it away from that. But um, what do you see as the role of the government in this shift and change because obviously with systems change we need multiple levels and multiple levers being shifted in order to create a new system so what do you see as as a need for our future governments yeah i think i I mean it's kind of you'll know what i'm about to say right like we need leadership from government to embrace this concept that we as a country could actually lead the world you know and not in a cliche way but actually in making a real change and the change, you know, the, what I've outlined, like requiring companies to outline their impact and their purpose and report on it, like that would be quite unusual. It would be quite different. And therefore, it would set us apart from what other countries have tried. Um, so I don't have a, anything more simple than that to say is that we need leadership from government because ultimately they're the ones who pass the laws. Um, but at a citizen level, at a movement level, each of us have a role to play. And certainly my hope um, in my life, I view my role to be a catalyst for impact. So I can't make all the changes, but I can help the people who set up charities or businesses that are able to have impact. So if each of you listening has that same attitude, how can I be a catalyst for impact? Then that's gonna change the conception. Um, And I I wanted to share something with you, which I thought was quite inspirational for me. Um, This is um, from Barcelona. So some of you may have been there and you've been maybe to the Sagrada Familia, which is a church. Um, It's the reason I hold this up. This is just like a sculpture of a bit of the church. And um, you've probably heard the term Gaudi, right? Like it's Gaudi-esque. So Antonin Gaudi was the designer. And when he was designing the Sagrada Familia, this church, way back in the 1870s, um, he started building it. And he died, I think it was about 1925. And it's been an intergenerational project. So they're predicting that we'll finish by the end of this decade. So think about that. You know, the person who designed it didn't live to see the end. And sometimes I worry about the state of things. And I, I worry like the people in the chat that we it's too slow. But I also think that sometimes our lives need to be spent in a way that I may not see the change. I hope I do, but I might not. But I can be one little link. I can be one of the builders adding another brick to this building. 
And the thing about this, um, this building is that it's now um, been going through that intergenerational, you know, the bigger vision of what we're aiming for. It's not just let's get it done within three years or five years. It's we're going to make it the most beautiful thing that we can. And when I think about Gaudi and what he was trying to do, um, if you see the church, you'll see it's just like completely different to anything you've ever seen as a building, as a structure. Leave aside anything about religion. Like it's just a really cool building. And I think about that and I think about the fact, um, you know, that when it comes to building something, um, we have to have a vision of what we're aiming for. So if he had built a normal church, it would have been done very quickly on time. Would it have gotten any visitors today if it was just a normal church? No. But this church is visited by more than 5 million people every year. So the bigger vision of what was possible, like if we could reimagine business here in New Zealand with a vision of what it could become and we could trailblaze it, then we would get much more impact than simply another version of what's been done elsewhere in the world. So that's kind of my vision. And I'll just play one little part of that. And each of you can play a part too. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great example and a really uh, good way to, to sort of visualize the impact that we can have as an individual, but also as a collective. And I think just going back to the, the government aspect of that, uh, we need a social mandate in order for any of the policies uh, to actually action as, as part and part of it. So if we're not behind it and we've got some controversial um, things being being put in front of us, controversial with the inverted uh, commas here, but you know, averse to change, to get people on board, it's the many that make that change. And I think that's a re yeah, that's why that's such a good example. And I guess in terms of some of the learnings, uh, you, you mentioned that we need to learn from um, best practices across the globe. And so how do you envision that happening and, and what sort of approaches might we take to harness some of those potential benefits of doing so? Yeah, well, we started the process with that report in 2019. So we interviewed 25 social enterprises using that terminology. <laughs> um, and the report uh, took us nine months to write. So we were very in-depth and thorough. If you have a look at it, it's like 80, 90 pages. And it, um, Dr. Jane Horan was the lead researcher and author um, with some of us supporting um, so that's the that's the level of depth that we need to be the rigor that we need to be using when it comes to this. Um, so I would be saying we need to be looking at the legislation in all the countries around the world where they've adopted B core style structures, you know, the community interest company structures, um, go translate the Italian version and the French version, and um, be looking at those and then conceiving, okay, what does it mean here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and in particular with the Te Ao Māori perspective, like what could we create here learning from all these other places? Um, so yeah, it, it's quite a big project, but you know, if there was a private member's bill put forward by an MP, and if there was resources devoted to it, then I don't see why it, it, would, it would be possible. Yeah, I thought for, yeah, to, to chew over a little bit more, I, I guess, in, in that sense, I, 
I'd like to just unpack a little bit around some of the barriers that you might see right now. We've, we've talked about a few of them, but if we really look at and zoom in on the environmental, social governance, fact, governance factors and corporate decision-making, what's in place now and how would you see that shifting? Uh, you mean specifically around ESG and companies? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think those are terms that are used too loosely at the moment, I think. Um, I do quite a lot with the Institute of Directors, and that that was one of the themes that came through in their recent leadership conference in May. Um, I wrote a summary of it. It was a two-day conference, and they had sessions on um, environmental, social governance. Um, and yeah, I, I guess it's just we've got to get beyond the box-ticking exercise of we've got this section of our report about ESG and integrating it into the business itself. Um, one of the comments I saw, someone was saying, you know, we just need to get on and start the companies. And I think there's a lot of wisdom there because if we can start companies that are doing things differently and we can prove that they work, then more people are going to want to do that as well. So you entrepreneurs out there, like I totally encourage you to do this. But when you're doing it, think about the impact and the purpose and how you're telling your story and bake it into the heart of your company rather than having it be an add-on little ESG component. Um, and as a practical example of this, like I want to give a really concrete illustration. So a couple of years ago, I was involved in helping set up a company called Community Finance. Um, I'm actually the chair of the board at the moment. And our focus is social housing. We got massive need in this country, right? There's 26,000 people or so on the emergency housing list. So what we're doing in that um, as an impact company is connecting philanthropic funders and investors with the opportunity to build social housing. So in a way, we're the dating app in the middle. <laughs> and we've targeted and been able to talk with and get funding from um, KiwiSaver funders like um, Generate, Pathfinder, and Simplicity. And we've worked with social housing providers like the Salvation Army or Court up in Auckland. Um, so when I start talking about this example, because it's a real example, like I'm not just making this stuff up, um, that company, you might think, oh, well, you've probably raised like what, 100,000 or 200,000. Actually, we just ticked over 120 million in funding that we've raised for social housing. So it's a real life example of a company, a finance company, which is doing things very different to the mainstream banks and the mainstream finance companies. Because ultimately we're very clear on our mission, which is to provide housing for people who need it. And so that business structure is modeling a new way of conceiving finance. So we're hoping other people will now look at it and go, well, we could try that. Um, because it is it is successful. So what's stopping? What what are the barriers? What's stopping the adoption and growth of impact-driven enterprises in, in New Zealand, Aotearoa New Zealand? I, unfortunately, I think it's still the lack of imagination and the binary way of thinking that if I'm going to do good, it's got to be charitable, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, and that's what I'm trying to encourage is hybrid models or models that bake in impact and purpose at their core. Um, yeah, but th this is why I do the podcast. Like I, I've literally talked with hundreds of people about their businesses. Like the latest one, just to give it a sample, Ben Scales, he's 
essentially in his early 20s, he's doing amazing things. He just graduated from University of Canterbury in product design. His company is called Kiwi Fiber. Um, so I'm a lawyer with my other hat. So I just helped them raise um, $1.8 million for their startup. And what are they doing? They are reinventing the use of harakiki flax. So it's taking what was a traditional product. And in fact, if you go back to the 1850s and 60s, it was the leading export from Aotearoa, New Zealand, because it's such a unique product. So, But this startup is saying, how can we use the harakiki in a sustainable way to make products that will replace plastic-based materials? So, you know, that interview is just one example of that it can happen. There are examples out there of people doing things differently. Awesome. And do you see a lot of um, moving together as in businesses starting to collaborate and create more positive impacts? And do you see this growing in the future? Yeah, for sure. I think um, there's that's how we learn is by seeing other examples and learning from each other. Um, I, I think there's a real movement in this direction. Um, I, I do quite a bit of work with startup programs. So in here in Otatahi Christchurch, we've got Ministry of Awesome and in Wellington, Creative HQ. And I've worked with both of those on some of their startup programs. And the interesting thing is that they'll tell you like, they're running a, a program and most of the companies or a lot of the companies have impact and purpose at their core. So I think it is a movement which is gathering and I'm just glad I can be one little part of that, um, helping to tell stories and hopefully get people to question. I mean, my, my main question is hopefully some of you disagree with everything I'm saying, but you go away and you think about it and you start to wonder, you know, like, oh, what, what could it be? Um, sometimes I'll be on a plane with someone, you know, and um, having a conversation, it ends up they're a CEO of a big company and I'll throw in some of these challenges and I hope that they go away and think about it because, you know, that's how change happens. Yeah. And I, and I think about some of the things that you're, you're throwing out there in terms of the challenges and, and how things could be done differently or seen differently. And I can still feel in here in the spaces that we're within uh, within social impact and um, on the ground that it's really painful uh, a lot of the changes and and particularly when it becomes really difficult to sustain the business or that you might have to go in a different direction um, so I, I guess coming back to that balance between impact profitability and sustainability do you have any sort of tips or suggestions in terms of how we might engage particularly for the small businesses as well because New Zealand is a country that has a number of small businesses and, and um, a lot of um, self-employment and um, and that, at that level as well uh, rather than the the big corporates that we see um, elsewhere well I guess the, the it's a simple piece of advice but don't try to change everything tomorrow just choose one thing or one little thing, you know, one aspect of your business. Or, I mean, the simplest thing that I'm advocating is what is your purpose? What is your impact? Write it down in three bullet points. I want to know what you do. And even for some companies, that will be quite challenging, honestly. <laughs> so that's a start. 
Um, I had, and then I, what I try to do is talk with metaphors and pictures. So I had a good one the other day from um, Israel Cooper, who's been on my podcast before. And, and he said, we've got to get away from thinking about money the way that we've traditionally thought about it. Money is vital for a business in the same way that blood is vital for a human body. But you don't want to have too much blood, right? You're, you're going to die if you have too much blood. And you don't want to have too little blood. There's a certain point where the amount of money and the amount of blood is the right amount. So I guess there's dangers of both sides, right? Like you've got to get the right, because I'm not advocating that there's no profit. I'm advocating that profit equals sustainability. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, it's a really great point. And I think that that's something that we need to keep talking about more and more because a lot of the smaller businesses who might not get it right, or even the larger businesses who don't get it right straight away, the fact that they're trying to move into that space, there's got to be a little bit of, um, I, I guess, just grace in, in some some aspects in, in that in that human world but um it's i guess tainted with those companies who are just trying to pull the wool over and and make a quick buck and again i guess it comes back to uh society and the way that we are exposed to what we know how we know how we check where we buy our products from understanding um supply chains and and all of those things it's it's kind of a new language or it's a language that's that's only developing well has been around for a while but it's only becoming more mainstream so i guess just in terms of how we again come back to our individual uh, trajectory and our choices and whether we buy in or not and it's really interesting i, I had a, a chat with uh with someone who's um who's quite influential in, in different spaces and they're like well i'm yet to be convinced until i'm convinced i'm not going to change my thinking and so therein lies a, a quite a problem that we have. We've got people who are really, really invested in the change and in the impact in the full good space. And then we've got a lot of people who are on the fence and, and just like a lot of change, you know, you talk about waves and you talk about um, the, the different, different levels. So I guess it's quite a complex space and place to be. Yeah. The interesting thing is for that person, when they go home and they're talking with their 15 year old daughter, I bet you that they're going to get challenged. <laughs> and that's that's quite interesting to me because I, I see I've got children and I see their perception and the way that they're thinking and, and, and looking at the world. So actually, you know, as the generations change, I think there will be shifts as well. And one of the um, things that I want to give issue as a challenge, which has been a challenge for me recently, is that each of us should be working on projects where there's the potential for failure, right? Like, and that's okay. <laughs> and I think too often we're only focused on things that we're sure will be successes or we're taking the easy way. But actually in our lives, we should always be trying to build in something that might just fail completely. And, and yet we're pushing the boundaries in some way and learning from that. And I think that's a mindset shift that would help. Like if each of us had projects we were doing, and this is really real for me right now, because I'm about to publish a children's book, which is a picture book called The Apple Tree. So I didn't draw the illustrations. I got someone who's amazing at drawing. I wrote the little short story, but I'm about to hit print with the Caxton Press down here, 4,000 copies. 
and it might be an abject failure. But on the other hand, it might lead to different conversations and opportunities. So I'm willing to take the risk of the failure in order to open up doors that otherwise would be closed. And I like that conception or that way of thinking that for each of us, we should be always having something that might just not work, but I'm going to try it anyway. Awesome. Well, I'm just looking at the time and I'd really love to get our audience involved. And if we've got any questions from the floor um, about anything that we've discussed tonight, uh, Stephen's here and I'm quite happy to answer any questions you might have. So feel free to take yourselves off mic and throw a question out there. Hey, Stephen, I've got a great, I've, I've got a great question. No, I haven't. Great presentation. Thank you. I've got a question. <laughs> get that right. Um, it seems listening to you talking that there would be a um, a direct correlation between the some of these ideas, like for example, having a constitution um, or having a written you know sense of purpose and what that actually means in quite practical terms. That there would be a direct correlation between that practice and the longevity or sustainability of businesses. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Because I think, you know, a lot of, particularly in the SME area where, as we know, you know, the data tells us that failure is horrific from a percentage point of view. I mean, like 60% mm -hmm. have gone before 10 years. Um, what you're suggesting, I suspect, is a really significant step towards a foundation of sustainability and longevity well i so i deal with startups smes and people founding their business all the time and one of my first questions to them is this sort of what are you here for <laughs> because mm -hmm. i think too many people don't think about it well and don't think about the money side the sustainability side so i agree mm -hmm. my hope would be that if they did do this that they're actually setting themselves up really really well because part of the problem with SMEs and, and small startups is that they are not telling their story well, and mm. therefore they're not finding the market that they fit in, and they're not mm. pivoting to where they need to be. Um, so, yeah, I would hope that this is a positive mm. um, help. And the other thing is that people can start, like literally, you could, we could have created companies while I've been talking. Like it's that simple. Yeah. And so there is something to be said for providing some form of education, you know, like what is governance? What is management? Those aren't things that were taught in school or anywhere. <laughs> so is there a role to be said for actually helping people before they hit click register the company, you know, to, to, to be supporting them? That's why I always try to be a mentor on startup programs, because mm. I want to get people adopting the right documents that they need for the future because so many people just have no idea so mm -hmm. yeah thank you for your comment though that's really good mm -hmm. thank you great idea having the constitution great idea we used to have them years ago yeah that's right and this is where history repeats itself right the way if in case people are interested they used to be called articles of association and you used to have to say what you were in business for. And what happened is that it became a way for you to list every possible thing under the sun that you were in business for. And therefore it became meaningless because it was simply, you know, 
we lease property and we sell products and we employ people and we, it was just meaningless. So what I'm proposing though, is a more refined focused purpose, kind of similar. If you think about charities, like there's 28,000 registered charities before they can become registered, they have to define their purpose and they have to articulate it. And there's actually a vetting, which happens, which is you didn't define your purpose well enough return to sender. So there's a balance here because I don't want to, like someone said in the chat, I don't want to have too much compliance, you know, but equally, I think it would set people up well for the future. So mm-hmm. have I a read of that Akina report. I think it summarizes some of this really well. I'll try and put it in the chat, actually. That'd be yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, the answer to Joe is it's called Kiwi Fiber. Kiwi fiber. They're the latest episode on an excellent podcast called Seeds, right? So <laughs> um, I put the links to everything that they do in um in that episode as well. I'll just put this Akina report in the um in the chat. Um the other thing around community, just to throw it in there, um, I'm really active on LinkedIn. And so that's another way to build community, you know, as a group of people who are interested. So I would welcome connecting with you all because that's somewhere that we can post ideas and new concepts and things like, let's look for platforms where we can do that. Well, while you're thinking of any other questions, I do have another one, of course. <laughs> um, but like, you, we're, so we're talking about a paradigm shift and we're saying that there's one starting to, sh- starting to happen. How do you see this evolving, particularly around impact over the next 10 years? And what changes do you really anticipate? I mean, we've touched on it a little bit already, but it'd be real nice just to hear some of those those things that you're thinking. Well, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And if all of you do what you do, maybe we'll have the change and hopefully it will be more dramatic. Um, I think what I'm hoping is that within the next decade that I will, so I'm speaking personally, right? Like from my perspective, my hope would be that in 10 years, when we're all sitting around having a glass of wine in the evening somewhere, that we're reminiscing about a decade ago, and I'm able to point to examples of constitutions, which changed the way that people thought about business. Um, So the example that I mentioned before, you know, the company exists to serve the earth, that's going to be kind of radical. No one that I know has ever written a constitution like that. So maybe other companies will like it as well. Um, In that constitution, I also talk about stars and wayfinding and the fact that we need new stars to guide our companies by. So that when it's ready, I think the founders of that company are going to be fine with sharing it and letting other people see it. Um, And then on a personal level, I I hope that the Seeds podcast will continue to grow. So um, I've done 356 conversations. This will be 357. I hope by then I'm up to a thousand, you know, like I'm going to keep telling stories and keep working. Um, I've I've got a conference which I'm implementing now. It's going to happen on October the 5th. Um, So that's called the Seeds Impact Conference. There's going to be 27 sessions running over one day in four different Zoom rooms, one room just devoted to community, and then three rooms with amazing speakers, um, including Francis Valentine, who many of you will know. Um, So that's going to be another little thing that I'm starting, and I hope it will gather momentum over the time, Um, and it'll just become like a yearly fixture 
all online the massive charge of $20 to attend the whole day. So um, just covering costs, you know, and things. But that's another example of something that I hope will grow beyond me as an individual and will become something that just gets in the calendar that, yeah, I'm going to go along to that. So that's kind of personally what I'm doing. Um, and then I just wrote an article um, with two Canterbury University professors about the role of nature as an entity. Because as you know, in, in the Wanganui River, um, we've got uh, Taranaki Maunga. Um, there's different examples of legal entities being formed. So I'll share the link to that um, with you all as well, because I'm going to keep pushing boundaries of what's possible with um, legal structures. <laughs> That's really cool. Thank you for that. And yeah, that conference looks amazing and looking forward to seeing if we can get along there and get, get people um, continuing in this in this sort of conversation because that's kind of what it's all about in terms of um, starting to make uh, real change uh, across the society. So I really, uh, yeah, thank you for, for doing what you're doing in that sort of space. Um, I guess just unless there are any other questions from the floor, I just want to make sure everyone's had their chance to ask Stephen while he's here. I think we kind of answered most of them or at least referred to them as they yeah. came up. I was trying to keep an eye a little bit on, you know, what was going on. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think so too. Um, I, so I guess I'm um, just giving you the, the opportunity, uh, Stephen, just to uh, reimagine business for a second. What will it look like from your perspective if we do these things in a hundred years? Yeah, well, that would be my hope is that my, I guess it would be my great-grandchildren or my great-great-grandchildren are actually in an environment where each business is conceiving of itself, not with a focus on profit and how much it can return to shareholders, but instead on the role that it's playing within the society and in a way that is considering all levels of stakeholders from customers, suppliers, the environment, iwi, you know, it's got a much bigger conception of the role of the company and that companies are very clear on the purpose and the impact that they're set up for. Um, that's sort of the vision of what I would hope companies are moving towards. And then I really hope that it's not just a subset of companies that it's, you know, those couple hundred or thousands or whatever companies, it's actually become so ingrained in our culture that, that we look back and go, how did they not know that this was where we were going to get to? Because the culture has shifted so much. And the reason I have hope for that is that if you look at, and it's kind of a silly example, okay, but I'm old enough to remember in the late 1980s, if you got on an airplane, it was filled with smoke because so many people were smoking. In fact, it was built into the architecture of an airplane right in your seat there was a little thing you flipped and you could put your ashes in it. Like it was promoting smoking. So I've seen that shift in my lifetime from smoke-filled cabins in airplanes to you can't smoke at all. <laughs> so change is possible and in a relatively short time, you know. So I do take comfort from the fact that if we can see the benefits of it, in that case, our health, right? And um, think of the secondhand smoke that we all had way back in the day. So it is possible to have change. And therefore, I think that we need to try with 
every fiber within us to push for that positive impact. Because one of the things that drives me is at the end of my life, when I'm hopefully 85 or 90 or whatever it ends up being, I want to look back and say, wow, you gave everything that you could to having positive impact. So I'm 47 right now as we're talking, right? Like, I'm not going to be doing this forever, but I have energy and I have time and I'm not watching lots of Netflix and I'm doing as much impact and change focused work as I possibly can. And my hope would be that the next generation of lawyers realizes that they can have that sort of impact as well. And all of you as well. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Stephen. Um, yeah, what a beautiful corridor and um, just love the passion that you have. I, I hope you've enjoyed uh, the the table's been turned a little bit in, in terms of um, kind of being interview, interviewed for your own uh, podcast, but hopefully your audience enjoy hearing a little bit more about what you think and, and how you think things should drive forward and what is really possible uh, in the future and, and some of those things that we all can do in our own locus of control to support that change and every little thing that we do do does add up. So we might uh, pause the conversation there and I will hand back over to Jana just to take us through uh, the last little piece that we have. If you're interested in more of these types of conversations, some of you I can already recognize as, uh, as, as current or past students, which is lovely to have you uh, within the space. But um, if you are interested in Academy X, Jana, it's all yours. Love it. Thank you, Hansen. Thank you, Stephen. That was such an interesting discussion. I really liked your analogy about that church. Like if it had been a regular church that he built, then no one would visit it today or pay any mind. But because it took that extra time, that extra purpose behind it, that is still something pretty amazing. Um, yeah, really resonated with me. So thank you. Um, I won't take up much more of everyone's time. Um, but just want to quickly introduce you, if you don't really know, if you like this kind of conversation and want to continue to have conversations like this, then we have two Changemaker programs, um, Postgraduate Certificate in Leading Change for Good and the Master of Change in Organizational Resilience. Um, in short, leading changes for people who want to gain the skills to effectively lead change, initiate change. Um, and MCOR, Master of Change in Organizational Resilience, is for those who just want to take it a step further and really learn how to navigate and how to master change. So you can stack leading change towards MCOR. Um, they're all designed to be part-time for people who are working, who want to implement the things that they're learning as they go. Um, this is our last intake of leading change for good, um, starting in August um, for all of 23 and all of 2024 as well. We're not going to be offering it next year. So if you're keen, um, now's your time to get on board. Um, we have an upcoming event if you want to learn more about them happening next week. I'll send out the details tomorrow um, for anyone who's interested, but just a little drop-in info session, ask your questions, hear some of the key details. Um, I'll quickly pass to Lisa just to introduce herself, our wonderful outreach manager. You'll go to if you have any questions at all. Kia ora, kapai, Jaina. Um, beautiful to see everyone tonight. Kapai is Stephen. Uh, I have been lucky enough to go on the Leading Change for Good journey and um, recognize a lot of people here tonight. It's a special, special journey where you're working towards a strategy of change, which is of your choice. It's your leadership journey, it's authenticity, it's sustainability. 
Um, it's the tools, framework, uh, system change and more and kaupapa Maori values and approaches. And which leads on to our Master of Change in Organisational Resilience, which um, is you're working towards a project of change where you implement change, which is um, the rubber meets the road. So, um, and it's of your choice. And I'm here to help if you have any questions at all. We have four uh, scholarships available. Back to you, Hansen. Yeah, so just want to thank uh, Stephen once more. Um, really appreciate your time and effort that's been put into this uh, research, the Kōrero, and um, and taking us through. So, and thanks to everybody who has uh, also joined and contributed to tonight as well. So, as I open with Karakia, I will close the session with Karakia so that I'll let you go back into your places and and spaces tonight. And um, if you're travelling, please travel safely. So. Ka whaka eria te tapu, ke wāti ai te ara, ke tūruki whakataha ai, ke tūruki whakataha ai, home year, who year, tai ki year. Let's see where else.